Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to the Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Do you have a mate that doesn't seem great? Maybe their team is up, but they're still down. A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You Okay? Welcome to the conversations that could. I'm Dermot Brereton. Each week I talk to people from across the sporting landscape to reflect on their career, be it past or present, discuss their struggles and their successes, what they've learned along the journey and ways in which we can all support each other through the challenges that life presents. Our guest tonight is a former international cricketer and captain of the Australian cricket team, widely regarded as one of the greatest wicketkeeper batsmen in the history of the game, playing 96 tests and 287 one-day, 287, there's almost a day on the field, 287 one-day internationals. Since retirement, he's carved out a niche as a cricket commentator and more recently as a breakfast radio host on SEN West Australia. Born in Belgium, New South Wales, youngest of four kids, moved to Lismore at 13 and was soon captaining the Kadena High School cricket team, Adam Gilchrist. Good evening. How are you? Hey, Derby, how are you? I'm I'm really well. Gee, I like I like that final little little uh, statement there. Kadena High School, yeah. hey, gee, that got the up the past. That got the prominence, didn't it? It did. Yeah. Is it true yeah. you actually spent time in your childhood in in Deniliquin? Is that right? Deniliquin. Yep. Yeah. It was. Well, you're right. In between. So you mentioned the being born in Bellingen, up on the sort of northern tablelands there of. New South Wales, and then and then we went down to a place called Junee, so we're down in the in the Riverina, and then we went further south to Denny, yeah. which uh, yeah, good footy stock, good cricket stock come out of there, but a lot of footy stuff uh, people out of there, and that so primary school years in Deniliquin, yep, and then as you mentioned, twelve or thirteen went north to Lismore, uh, which is where mum and dad still are, so my high school years, and I guess as far as you know, growing up and. Oh, well, uh, reportedly maturing a bit, they were the they were the years at high school. So that's probably where I um, probably where I say I'm from. If someone asks me now, yeah, right. Uh, just to think about that, at um, Danil- I think Scuba came from yeah. Daniliquin. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. They, yeah they, 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 that might be a little bit like Wagga. Everyone goes on about Wagga and what's in the water there. They get so many sports people out of there, but Dan- yeah, Denny. The, the, Southern Riverina. Well, certainly the O'Donnells were a big family, very prominent family of, of Deniliquin, particularly on the back of Simon going and doing what he did. But, you know, and the buzz about him, it was, it was footy and cricket. Yeah, so the dream was alive. You didn't yeah. have to pick. Uh, back in those days, the, the Harper family, Laurie Harper played for Victoria in cricket, but the, his brothers played, uh, you know, decent football and decent cricket down in the grade competitions in... Down there, but it's funny your your past and where you're from, isn't it? I, I remember oh, yeah. going. I had the very, as you mentioned, I was uh, fortunate and had the honour of captaining Australia in Test cricket. And the Bradman Foundation, which is based out of Barrel, yep. um, they offered every uh, birthplace of any Australian men's captain. Uh, this is a number of years ago to go 50-50 in funding uh, a, a bust, you know, one of the um, yes. uh, little sort of head and shoulders statue, if you like, yep. 
uh, a bronze bust to have in the, the town square and, and Bellingen took them up on the offer. So we went there for the unveiling in the town square. Not a big population in Bellingen and, and the, the, local, the Lord Mayor was there and all the locals and mum and dad are sitting there waiting for the big unveiling. And I said to mum, I knew we hadn't stayed there long after my birth because dad was a teacher and he was skipping around. And the Lord Mayor's there going, oh, our favourite son's back, born and bred here and looting, here he is. And, and I said to mum, how long were we here again? Thinking it was about 18 months to two years of, of the uh, Six weeks. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but the, the prodigal son was coming home. <laughs> yeah, and, it's fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, it's always hard to know where you... But there's only one place where you were born, isn't there? You can live in a lot of places, but there's only one place. So that, that was the birthplace. But Denny was very much part of that journey. And, and what about the ghillie bus there? Is it... Is, is there a lot of pigeons in, <laughs> in Bellingen? I tell you what, they, they ran out of bronze to get the ears done, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they got there in the end. But it's, it's a tremendous honour, but it's amazing how how much of a tourist destination Bellingen is because, well, certainly in my circle of friends, you get the, the text picture message of them standing there either pouring a beer over the head of it or, or as you say, <laughs> if there is a, a bit of pigeon poo running down the nose, so they take a photo and send it through, but all in good fun. Yeah, absolutely. So the premise of our show this evening, we talk about the space of mental health and the like, and yeah. I've had a good read through your bio. I've seen your career. I've watched it. I'm an avid cricket follower, and I don't think you've been inflicted with anything like that. But So if we can touch on some of the, the areas where you've had uh, – times where you've had to actually think outside the square you've had to actually adapt I, I would imagine there would be times when ground staff haven't exactly prepared pitches to their perfect state and 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 was a macram or someone like that is charging <laughs> in at the other end and and you you might be fearful and and those types of things so we'll, we'll discuss that is there any time when you walked out onto a pitch for such a sublime stroke player was well, there times when you felt vulnerable? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, you know, I nearly interrupted you there where you said you, you in, in your uh, perception of having read about my career or followed it, that I didn't have any of those wrestles and, and mental health. I mean, immediately, probably still, uh, unfortunately, sets off alarm bells, just that term, doesn't yeah. it? Um, but, and, you know, and so often and so more regularly we're seeing people say they just need a break for some mental health, um, you know, things to work through mental, with their mental health. And, yeah. uh, it still probably triggers, oh, gee, they must be struggling. They must be really flat and bad, or they, are they okay? Um, which are all great, great questions to ask uh, and to follow up on. But I guess there's just, like anything, there's like uh, your general health, there's varying levels, varying depths of of health and, and whether it's really chronic and serious and, 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 and ongoing or if it's an acute exposure to something that really disappointed you. And, uh, you know, I'm a Carlton supporter. Um, I, had to, I, I had severe mental health issues a couple of days ago watching them do what they did. But, yeah, that, that's, uh, you can get over that pretty quickly. But, uh, you know, things come and go pretty quickly and other things are, are more chronic and stick around. But when I reflect... Uh, about my career there's no doubt and it's probably more in reflection that there were times where psychologically and, and mentally I was wrestling and, and battling more than I knew at the time what with and uh look the the biggest thing was um self-doubt I think just uncertainty that 
what to the to the point where for the first time ever in 2005 and I don't assume every listener is an avid cricket fan and, and knows the game inside out and that it doesn't matter but that happened to be my profession playing cricket and up until 2005 things had gone really well pretty you know I had yep. a little bit of a setback when I was about 17 I didn't get picked in a, a certain team and I thought at that immature age that's the end of the road you know you don't get picked in the state under 18 team you're gone you can't that's the end of the journey but of course all that worked as incentive to keep pushing and, and eventually the career plays out really nicely and and then in 2005 it, it felt like an ambush from England not to just us as a team but for me individually they seem to have this mode of attack um, and planning that I'd never been exposed to and it was working whether it's at the Ashes series over there 2005 Ashes. It was the We'd... best Ashes series I think I've ever seen. That's that's the one where um, yep. uh, uh, what's it, uh, um, Glenn stood on the ball in, in yep. pre, pre-game once and he had to withdraw. That That is the best Ashes series I've ever witnessed. Yeah, it, it, it's a lot of people say that. Uh, and playing in it, you knew that it was quite unique, something quite extraordinary. The level of cricket just was elevated. Uh, which, funnily enough, was probably my worst series. So <laughs> if that tells you something about how I handle pressure. But, uh, yeah, famous for Andrew Flintoff getting a wicket with a couple of balls, runs needed in the second. That very test you mentioned. Uh, iconic photo of him sort of consoling Brett Lee, getting us so close but yet so far. Um, yeah, it was a phenomenal series. It was the first time England beat Australia in Ashes cricket for 18 years. Yeah. And... You know, I was really battling through that, challenged individually by an opponent for the first time where it looked like they had a plan. They were executing too well, and I couldn't dig myself out of it. So I sort of got through that, and then by the time we ended up on our next tour in South Africa, they were then implementing the same plan, and I was getting out the same ways. I just couldn't find my way out. And uh, a lot more thought in there, and a lot more toing and froing, and, and sort of. Um, wrestling in my mind, if you like, but it got to to a point where I was dismissed in South Africa to a bowl that wasn't as skillful as Andrew Flintoff. He wasn't as good as uh, you know the the level that I thought I could probably be competitive against. But can I ask anyway, who it was? It's guy a guy by the name of Andre Nell. Okay, yeah, larger yeah. than life character. Yep. yep. Great workhorse. Too. Yeah, he was a workhorse, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, really. You know, strong, bold character. One of those fellows that comes in and, and, and probably would admit he's not as skillful as most, but what he lacks there, he'll make up for just through endeavour and heart and spirit in a team. But he got me out the same way that Flintoff had been getting me out and he gave me a good gobful and sort of, I've got you in my pocket sort of stuff. And, and he probably did at that point in time. But I got into the change room, sat down, didn't throw, I was never a real big bat thrower or screamer or yeller, but I sat down and I was compelled just to get a notepad out of my bag and write how I was feeling just I, I, f- I felt I needed to get it out and and screaming and yelling and smashing my bat up wasn't going to help that so I wrote and the final wrote line I wrote was um, you know I was taught words along the line that I'm bogged I like this game's got me by the scruff of the neck and I can't get away from it and yeah, the wow. final line I wrote was I hate this game which you know, at the time was just getting it out there. And I did, clearly I did. I was, I was expressing the emotion. And 
you know, when you come to write an autobiography later on, it's nice to go back to the notes because they reflect how you felt then. You know, by the time I wrote my book, it was four years later and things took a turn for the good and it's very easy to forget that, that true deep inner feeling as you're experiencing at that time. So, and for me to think now even that I could say that about cricket, which has given me so much joy, all my friendships, my life and livelihood, um, to say I hated the game, that I, I can't imagine saying that now. I, I don't and have never ever felt that since. But that was probably where the game had me, as, as I say, by the scruff of the neck. And then to, to the point where my wife Mel always used to say she could go, she could see me go off to a day of test cricket and, and she might not be there or, or uh, even if she was on tour, she mightn't have got there for the day. I'd come home to the hotel and she wouldn't know whether we'd batted or bowled. She wouldn't know whether I'd got runs or kept well or not because she just always would say, look, you're just consistent personality. But through that period of time, she knew. my results were reflective in my mood and she would know full well whether I'd succeeded or more particularly through that little passage I was... I wasn't succeeding and, and it was affecting my, my, my mood and therefore my, you know, the way I approached other people and, and the relationships around me. So that tells me that I was wrestling and I was really bogged there and finding it hard to get out. So it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, that series and then the South African series after, it was the first time Australia had to combat really detailed, really experienced, and let's say they did it, <laughs> 100% legal, unlike we tried, um, the reverse swing aspect. Yep. So clearly there was something that came into the game at a different level and a different process that you as a beautiful stroke player, is it fair to say that you, you, you played on length a lot of the time, didn't you? It yep. didn't matter where the ball was. If it was the wrong length, it was going. And so that absolute free spirit stroke player had to change his game or thought he had to change his game. What does that do to the psyche of that free spirit? Yeah, it, it, it's beautifully described and it, it, it chained me up. It, well, first of all, it created self-doubt mm. for the first time to the point where I was uh, almost walking off at times of being dismissed, sort of thinking to myself, have I fluked my way here to this level? <laughs> like, have I bluffed them for 10 years in international cricket? Have I and bluffed 4,000 runs? <laughs> yeah, like, seriously, the more, like, because yeah. it's like, I'm never going to get it. And, like, they just had these funky little fields that played on my ego or my, um, more my mindset, not my skill set, but my mind to know whether I should or shouldn't. And, and so as soon as you're creating doubt, in, a, in an opponent, in a sporting sense, as you know, mate, as soon as you've got to create doubt in an opposition, that means, therefore, they're then going to have to probably hesitate a bit while they make their mind up to what to do. And as soon as you hesitate, you're cooked in, in, in elite sport and, and in many facets of life, I guess. If, if there's times where there needs to be clear, concise thinking, as soon as you hesitate, you're in, probably in a, you know, you're on the back foot. And that was me. Um, I, I think also just in the... In the um, along the theme of you know discussions about health mentally and focus and your ability to to you know just do day-to-day um, things uh, that you need to complete um, I've, I reflect more so now too I think 
about a year before that 2005 tour, we went to India. And the holy grail for cricket was to win yeah. in India because we were dominating England every time. We were dominating everyone everywhere around the world without sounding too you know, self-indulgent. But we were a strong team, but we couldn't win in India. And Australia hadn't won there for 31, 34 years. But in 2005, we conquered that. And that, for me, was the most fulfilling achievement of our, of our player group, that, that sort of cohort of players. But, but I think then we didn't ever refocus back to the next challenge, which was England. And, and I don't know if it's complacency, but more psychologically, I don't think I ever came back off the, the thrill of the, you know, the hunt and the chase of India and we achieved it. And then, uh, and I guess that can say something about, you know, in life, uh, we achieve things, we, we have successes. Or if we have really low, flat, depressing times to, to recalibrate and just, I guess, play what's in front of you a little bit yeah. uh, and don't get stuck either way too high or down, down, bogged down below. It's about just shortening the, or in your football term, lowering the eyes and just sort of maybe set some smaller term goals. Uh, and I don't think I did that. I think I was still, in my mind, we, we achieved what we wanted. I remember getting off the plane in England in 2005, big press conference, and I'm going, oh, I don't ever want to be part of a team that hands the ashes over. And <laughs> so, you know, and of course, four months later, we're handing the over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So it's, 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 all, um, it's all in that, I think, can play so much, just the, the mindset of, yeah, the the goal setting. It sounds so simple, but just having little things that you need to focus on. After the break, I'm going to ask you about the pressures you feel when a nation expects you to achieve on behalf of them. I'm Dermot Burton, and our guest tonight is the great Adam Gilchrist. This is the Conversations That Could, brought to you by Dare Ice Coffee. Kickstart a conversation with Dare, and are you okay? The Conversations That Could with Dermot Burton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it. But a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Welcome back to the Conversations that Could. I'm Dermot Brereton and our guest tonight is Adam Gilchrist, former Aussie cricket legend, widely regarded as one of the most brilliant and dangerous wicketkeeper batsmen in the history of the game. I saw Geoffrey Dujon, uh, Gilly. Uh, I, I've got you ahead of him. I can't think of anyone else. Who do you reckon <laughs> challenges your your crown as that that batsman keeper that, that can take a game away from the oppo? Oh, very nice of you to mention me. I mean, he was a hero of mine, Geoffrey Dujon. Was Rod Marsh was my, uh, yeah, well, Rod was my, my the ultimate hero yeah. for me. He was what I wanted to do and be and but Dujon in that West Indian setup. Oh, look, the modern day cricketers, a bloke called Rishabh Pant. Again, oh, don't yeah. assume oh, every, wow. everyone listening loves their cricket the way we do, mate. But Rishabh Pant's a young Indian kid who just, he just wants to take it on. He plays with complete freedom and he's going to, you know, you're going to come a cropper a few times. And that's tough in India when you've got one and a half billion and expecting big things <laughs> from you. But he takes it on and he plays with freedom and, uh, and, and he wins games. What yeah, is it about you? It. What is it about you, glove men, who all seem to be lefties when you've got the willow? Yeah, yeah it's not a bad side of the bat to stand on, I reckon, because <laughs> you know the majority of bowls are right armers, so it takes out the leg LBW straight away. <laughs> so McGrath used to keep telling yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. There's some who are very good at, at 
putting a couple of extra slips into the lefties too, just keep nibbling away outside. Yeah. Never really troubled you that one day. But you mentioned the pressures, you know, like Richard Pant, he's got one and a half billion people. Yeah. Australia's a big country and, and we, we're very vocal, we're very loud. And, and I feel like I'm blowing wind up your backside a lot here, but I've, I've seen you, you know, with the the... the Test century, what did you make it? 57 balls. So that's pure stroke play. And then I've seen you against the Pakistanis where where you had to bat out for, what was it, two and a half, three, or whatever ridiculous amount of of sessions and, mm. and show that grit. But And even like in that 2005 series, we'd be under the pump. And oh, it's all right, Gilly's coming to the crease. <laughs> and then it wouldn't happen. Uh, did you feel pressure? Did you feel pressure like that throughout your career after you've well, – once you get to 2,000 runs, I know you've got five and a half, but once you get to 2,000, people have an expectancy of you. Yeah, yeah, that's the word, expectation. Uh, and look, to, to answer that question, I, I, I didn't predominantly feel that. I, I, like it was, I felt pressure came from within. Uh, so, you know, prepare well do all the things that you knew you had to do uh, and only you knew, you know, the man in the mirror stuff. So um, uh, be honest with yourself. And if you were prepared, you ticked all the boxes of skill work, of um, of sleep, of food, of just if you were fully prepared, I felt like I could go into any competition pretty relaxed with a little bit of that nice nervousness, the, the stuff that just meant it showed that it meant something to you. But... Um, but I, I tried very early in my career, I remember thinking that. So don't worry about what the others think. Just just know that, give yourself the best chance. And then whatever happens after that, you, you're going to have to take. Some of it's going to be good. Some of it, there'll be days where you're scratching around, but you find your way to 100. Or you, other days where you smash your first four balls and then you get bowled off a, a ripper from a, a good bowler. So Do you have to have that? Do you have to just accept that some days, hey, he's going to produce a Jaffa somewhere yeah. in it. It could be real early. Yeah, yeah, and and without demeaning bowlers, it's not often that they do. It's not often that it is the umpire or the the best delivery that gets the wicket. Yeah. Um, they bowl a lot of amazing deliveries, a lot of the top level bowlers. But often those are the ones that don't get the wickets. But it's then what that does to the mindset of the pot, of the batter, and how they react to maybe a lesser delivery that can often get the wicket. So it is mind games at that top level. Uh, but I, I think as far as pressure and expectation external I remember reading a line written by the late Peter Roebuck he was a yes yeah. English cricketer fine cricketer a lot of first class cricketer Great and then spent yeah. summers out here I was going to say his written word I found beautiful really really descriptive um, you know educated knowledgeable well read and I find he's one of those journals where some of the words you read and go oh no idea what that is and I find myself going and looking up just to find out uh, whether I continue to use those words or not who knows but yeah. you, you feel like you're learning stuff when you're reading from certain types of journos and he was one of those but but what he did do once he described the cape of bravado that cricketers need to wear and and it's possibly the same across all sports people and certainly other maybe just profile people in the public profile space um you know, and I could really relate to it. You put this big cape on, you know, you can just picture this big, heavy, sort of wizard-like cape, <laughs> and it just, it looks all flashy on the outside, but underneath, 
you, who knows what's under there, but you've got to just conceal how you're feeling, conceal you know, the emotions to everyone else. And We and describe I, that as the veneer. The veneer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think there's, I could really relate to that and I understand that that's, when you're talking about you know, are you okay or mental health, it's probably the last thing we want people to be encouraged to do. But I found that I could relate to that through my career because it allowed me just to go out there and, and if on the days where I was, you know, like the, the duck, you know, paddling wildly under the water, but <laughs> if you look pretty cruisy on top, the opposition could start to panic and go, oh, no, here we go. Um, so I related to that, but probably what I identify now is when I hit that um, aforementioned 2005 sort of struggle period, yeah. I should have taken the cape off and let people know. And that's probably my handbrake through that period. I didn't. And until a point where it, as hope, fortunately for me, in a cricketing sense, it came to that sort of climax point where I had to, I had to reveal it. Um, you know, and so often... Not, not in sporting, in general life and general mental health. We, we hope that point comes where everyone finds out about it before it's too late and something silly happens. So, yeah, that, that point came for me. But I, but I could relate to that desire in a sporting sense to, to not let either the opposition or the home fans or commentators know what I was thinking, that I was a bit panicked or just just try to look really natural and positive and happy and... I think that's probably the most disgusting out of my autobiography was people coming and going, I didn't know you had so much self-doubt. I didn't know that you were, you were unsure about things. And I'd say, yeah, it was there. But that's, I think everyone, to a point, has times where there's self-doubt. It's just yeah, people must. that can allow the positivity to come over the top of that and, and trust what work you've put in to, to snuff that out. One of the most amazing conversations I've had with any elite sportsman in the world was with the great AB, Alan Border. Yep. Yep. And I asked him, I'll cut the story down, I asked him, have you ever been scared out there? And he said, nah. Oh, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> and he mentioned the old whacker pitch. Oh. And he said, Michael Holding was coming in. And he went in and they were about, he thought they were a show. They rolled the windies for about 120 odd or so. And he went in thinking he was batting at number five and he thought, oh, we'll sneak our way to 50 or so and we'll graft through and we could get a win against him here. He said he went in at three for five or something similar to that. He said Michael Holding was coming over the pitch and when he shouldered arms to it and it went through at chest height, he, he reckons he said, that is definitively the quickest delivery I've ever faced. And he said, yeah, all right, okay. And then he said to the umpire, I go around the wicket, man. <laughs> and as he was running in, AB said, if he gets this online, I am not quick enough. This is a captain of Australia with all those yeah. huge reflexes and the toughness yep. that he had. I am not quick enough to get out of the way of it. Have you ever yeah. been scared like that? Uh, I, I think there's always an element of, physical intimidation or fear when you're facing the really quick stuff. I don't think anyone can deny that. You're, you're extremely well protected. So yep. there was never a genuine... Alan Donald came out to Australia after the years of South Africa being shut out. Sharp he, early, wasn't he? 
Oh, he was quick, and he all he wanted to do was bowl at the wacker because he'd grown up <laughs> hearing about this lightning fast pitch with the breeze behind it, and that was his life's cricketing his Ambition, dream yeah, yeah. Uh, was to do that. And, and bowling he golf the, balls on the on the road. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. At, so he did that for the first time in 1997 on a tour out here. So we played him in the state game, and he he did bowl a a, a very fast ball to me. Um, and I thought I saw it short, so I sort of tried to duck, but I only got a half squat in, but and I was still looking straight down the pitch, and the ball just, I just remember the noise. It, it hit me right, so the, the grill, the metal grill, it hit me flush. It would have just smashed slightly left of my nose, but right at the top row of teeth, like it would have been horrific, but the noise was thunderous, and it's the first time I'd ever been hit in the helmet, in the head. Uh, and I was somewhat stunned, and I turned around, and the guy at short leg, like called Adam Backer, says, oh, do you want to get that fixed? And I said, oh, what's that? And he said, that. And, and then I realised the grill was pressed right up against my face. It was really oh, dinted in. It looked like a motorbike accident. But um, So I duly took five minutes to get that change, and then three balls later, he bowled, and I just fended one, and, and I yelled out, catch it, I think, to, to the slip scored, and then fortunately they did, and I got out of there. But um, I, I think... But the other thing too, that's a, that's a a mental battle, but a battle of will and and courage, I guess. But the other one interesting around that space term is, and I'd be interested to see whether you ever had something like this in your career, facing Mutai Muralitharan from Sri Lanka, the leading wicket taker in World Test cricket. Playing him in Sri Lanka, I couldn't pick him out of the hand. I didn't know which way the ball was going to spin. That's this is in test cricket. You're oh, at wow. the, the highest level. And I went in there facing him, and it felt like I was under 10s playing in men's A grade. Like, it was, it just felt, I felt so vulnerable, not from the physically getting hurt, but being made to look so silly. Uh, and that was a really intimidating thing for me. That was a, a fear of looking stupid and and then that's in the first game of a three test series so he's got another five times to bowl at me after that and i've got to try and make an impact how'd you sort uh, that I, out uh when in doubt slog sweep <laughs> <laughs> so first innings i slog swept him for four then top edged it and was out yeah. and then in the um in the second innings he just knocked me over again and then next test match fortunately well fortunately Unfortunately, Ricky Ponting got injured during the game, so he, he did his back, so he couldn't bat at number three. So while I was off the field, I assumed the captaincy as vice-captain, and when it came time to bat, I said, I'm, I'm not just pushing everyone up one position. I'm going from <laughs> seven to three, and I'm getting in there before Murley comes on. And I got a few runs before Murley came on, and I felt more settled then. So, but, um, yeah, but that, I mean... Well, Shane used to do that to people too, didn't he? The, oh, the, yeah. There was a fear. Yep. He's the only – well, I didn't see him really and I didn't see that, you know, the, the description on the faces of his teammates. But you could see, and you behind the stumps, you could see teammates smiling when he'd come on and yep. you could see the batsmen, a fear in their eyes, not as a fear of facing a Wes Hall and Andy Roberts a yep. Dennis Lilly, Jeff Thompson. It was a fear of – I don't know how I'm going to play this bloke. I'm meant to be yeah. here on my merit, and I'm not good enough to get this bloke kept back yeah. patting back down the pitch. Yeah, yeah, and, and and as I say, I don't know whether you felt that because in my mind, I 
Only oh, one bloke. Happy. Ross Glenn Denning made me look stupid early yeah, right. days. He was everything I thought I could do. He did it and better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty hard to beat them when they're like that. Yeah, yeah. And I was, you know, start little things start coming. What everyone else was aware of it. Yeah. So everywhere, you know, that night at the hotel, you know, the the, the staff at the hotel, the, the the, and again, that takes me back to two thousand and five. Like every time I went out to dinner or whatever, you just felt like everyone else. Well, they probably weren't. They're probably just enjoying their meal or having a drink or. <laughs> but you think that everyone's talking about it and knows, everyone knows that you're struggling and you've got no idea what Murley's bowling or what Freddie Flintoff's bowling. And yeah. it, that, that's when you start to dig yourself into those holes and probably where you need to just reveal it to someone and they'll go, man, I didn't even notice. <laughs> didn't, yeah, wouldn't have a clue. But anyway, what do you want to talk about? It sounds like the great Adam Gilchrist was internalising a lot more than we thought. Yeah, well, that's, that's what I say about that caper of bravado and, and then people later on commenting. But... And I don't reflect on it like, you know, oh, what a struggle it was. Fortunately, going right back to your intro or your comment that it seems I didn't have any um, times where I, I was really knocked over by you know, mental health or self-doubt. But it, it's there. There's yeah. no doubt there's a layer of it there. And it's learning the mechanisms. And that's what we encourage everyone to do to find out. Trial the mechanisms. Don't be afraid to reveal it just to find out what's going to work for you to help you make sure you come over the top of it. I'm Dermot Brereton and our guest tonight is Adam Gilchrist. This is The Conversations That Could. Kickstart a conversation with Dare and Are You OK? More with Gilly in a moment. The Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. When your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it. But a conversation could. Ask Are You OK? Welcome back. My guest tonight is Adam Gilchrist, Aussie cricketing legend turned media identity. Gilly, I think I've told you, I'm one of those 58-year-old idiots that still plays local cricket and I'm a walker. Are you? I am a walker. I won't walk for LBWs. I I reckon even I can get that wrong, but I'll (laughs) walk if I nick. Yeah, good on you. Why? I just feel, I I love the, the sanctuary that a cricketing oval provides and I think it's at, at our level especially anyway the umpires are all someone from the opposition yeah. um, so take the take the matter out of their hands uh, and and I love that saying I mean for rugby union it's the game they play in heaven yeah. and I love the saying it's just not cricket I just yeah. love the the austerity of it and and think it should be played in that spirit and we also have a rule in our team you can bag anyone on the opposition and get into them, but they have to laugh as well. So, so yeah, that's our nice, that's nice. Our, that's our ethos. So, yeah, but you were yeah. a walker, and it created. I won't say from what I could see, it didn't create major waves, but there were some who disagreed with you. Yeah, certainly within the team, um, there was some who disagreed with me, but I never felt pressured not to carry on to play in the manner I wanted to play or felt comfortable playing, be it from Steve uh, War as captain through the test team and, and Ricky. I don't think he was a walker. He certainly wasn't, <laughs> and he was very outspoken about that and no dramas. He, he didn't mind it. And that's where, um, you know, in, I think there's your description of it, of why you do is, is spot on, and I can relate to that about taking... We are we are brilliant. We certainly I can only speak from our point of view as as cricketers. We're wonderful wingers. 
about umpiring. We can apportion blame for a loss to anything else, be it umpiring, be it dodgy pitches, be it um, you know too hot, uh, bad food on tour, whatever. We'll, Moisture in the air. Yeah, just something. <laughs> we'll, we'll say someone else's fault, mm. but. And we'll certainly blame the umpires uh, for a loss. But when you get one that goes your way, we wouldn't go to the umpires and give them, oh, thanks for that one. That was a stinker, but it worked for us. Thank you. Like You, you just accept it, don't you? But, so anyway, I, and, and I don't want to get parked on the point, but it was around a time where technology was coming into it about those close catches and players on our team were, were not walking when they knew they were out, but they'd trust, try to make them look at test technology and knew it was in their benefit. So... There was one thing I thought, like the word you said, take one decision out of the umpire's hand. It, it, it takes one opportunity to one less possible mistake and then you can just get on with it and play with a, a clear enough conscience. And, and I'm not saying that those that don't walk are bad people. That's just, they're, they're comfortable with it. That's a little nuance of cricket, isn't it? You can, uh, to the point where I've been told that I'm bringing the game into disrepute oh. because I was going against the umpire's decision. Oh, you know, dear the late, Lord. great Rudy Kutzen, who just unfortunately passed away. He's the umpire oh, in the semi-final who said to me in that World Cup semi, he went, not out. And I just looked at him and I just went, oh, I've got to go. I've got to walk. That was so <laughs> obvious. And I just turned and walked off. So they're saying I, I went against his decision. But anyway, it's um, Is that, uh, did, it creates so did good you, discussion. Did you actually go, oh, oh, no, I can't let you get away with that one of giving me not out. I have to. I looked. I, I was down, sort of played a sweep shot. So I was down on my knee and I was sort of half getting up. I looked at him shaking his head. And the South Sri Lankan guys were going bananas, and and something I must go. You got to go, like, and, and that I had been a walker all along. It just the fact that it was a World Cup semi had the global cricketing eyes all watching it at the one time, so that made it bigger. But um, did somebody? Yeah, what, what you don't want, Dermy? I've got no drama with people not walking. That that was a nuance of the game, but. You don't want a selective walker. Yeah, that's the worst. Someone yeah. who picks and chooses when when it looks cool and sweet to get off. But yeah, so anyway. Yeah. Um, did somebody put that into you? Like at a, a young age, did you watch parents? Because I remember seeing a person in local grade first walk mm-hmm. and somebody from the opposition just stood up and applauded and said, that's the way cricket should be played. And I remembered that moment as a 12-year-old. Yeah. And and that's, I always thought, well, if that's the way, it, it, it brings joy to people to see your fairness in it. And that's yep. probably where it stems from. What about for you? Anyone? Yeah, yeah. Pa- pa- I think parents they lay the foundation, certainly in my my instance, but uh, about, you know, ethics and, and, um, and morals and so on. So I think it's a bit reflective there. I remember th- there was a time where I didn't walk in a game around that under 18 playing the Australian Institute of Sport Creed Academy team uh, we're playing against ACT Rod Marsh was our head coach I wanted to get runs desperately to impress him maybe yeah. get into the state squad and early on I got a nick to a, a wily old leg spinner from the ACT one of those players that had been to Sydney grade cricket scratched yeah. the edge of state cricket didn't get there came back Knew still playing his trade at about 40 years of age playing against 18 year olds and Anyway, I went on and got a hundred after smashing this ball and not walking because I just I was I was paralysed because I thought I'm going to miss out on runs here, and the moment had passed by. Anyway, I end up getting a hundred, and, and the old fella comes into me after the game, and goes, "Oh, congratulations, young and great hundred." And I went, "Oh, mate, I'm so sorry. That's embarrassing. That was really embarrassing. I'm sorry." He goes, "No, no, no, no. Yes, don't worry. It means more to you than it does to me. Clearly." And 
I don't think it, it was a barbed comment, but it hit me in the heart, and I thought, oh, at what cost? Yeah. At what cost? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think from that moment on, I didn't get an agenda item out and go, must walk in World Cup semi. <laughs> um, I just thought, no, nah, that's good enough for me. I'll just, I'm just going to play it that way and, and, and deal with it from there on in. I'm Dermot Brereton, and our guest tonight is Adam Gilchrist. This is The Conversations That Could, kickstart a conversation with Dare and Are You OK? More with Gilly in a moment. The Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you OK? My guest tonight is one of the cricketing greats, Aussie cricketing legend turned media identity, Adam Gilchrist. Gilly, you've made a, a seamless transition into the commentary box. You're loved by people. Your analytical view on it is fantastic. I, Yeah, I turn it up every time I see your head on there. Uh, retiring, your final day when you're a cricketer and your commentary could be ahead of you. Something could be ahead of you. But knowing this is the final game, the final ball I'll stare down, whether it's with gloves on or a bat, how was that moment? Well, emotional to, to know that I wasn't going to be in that dressing room sense with, with teammates, the camaraderie um, in, in that sort of facet of life as far as around cricket teams and, and it had been such a consuming part of your life. But as far as the transition out of the game, Dermy, I was... I think I was pretty well prepared, and I don't mean necessarily with, um, I'm not talking about in materialistic sense or uh, financial sense, just mentally. I'd, I'd, I think I'd been thinking about it. The actual retirement came to me quicker than I expected. I, I wasn't expecting to announce a retirement two days before that I did. Um, but I'd been thinking about relationships, be it um, partnerships, be it uh, you know, having a sponsor, but then trying to learn more about the sponsor than just product endorsement. And yep. trying to, so, and I guess the key thing on reflection that I would say to anyone at any stage of life, be it sport or, or any um, particular uh, occupation, is uh, opportunity, knowing when opportunity is knocking. That's a, a, the thing about opportunity. People say, how do you take opportunity? How do you seize it? So, well, first of all, you've got to know when it's there. So open your eyes, be prepared to to take on something different or have it, you know, and you would have been through this going, by way of example, going to the old sponsor's lunch. So you had the team sponsor, they have their big function and you'd have to go and the team would roll out and you'd all sit on a different table with ten, nine other guests of sponsors. And a lot of guys used to whinge and complain and kick and scream. <laughs> but go into that and talk, meet people. And then off, I know from that, sort of situation a couple of opportunities came that were part of the group of um uh relationships that i had post cricket that went on for 10 years so just knowing when opportunities there they might not all open up like that but uh, a lot don't but um that's probably the key thing so i felt like my transition was i I did not think i would go into commentary or broadcasting I, Mm. i didn't plan to at all I went and did other things for a few years and then about four or five years after that, an opportunity came up and I just, just loved it. Well, you, your cricketing career went from strength to strength all the way through. You've been an absolute star along the way. Every post has been a winner. You've, you've lent your hand to some organisations outside of the arena as well. Would you like to tell us about some of the, the organisations that you've involved yourself in for the, for the betterment of fellow man? 
Oh, well, probably probably the main one has been uh, Ronald McDonald House, Perth. Been patron there for 21 years, so that's uh, been the regular, consistent one. I was involved with the National Australia Day Council for about six years, which uh, helps run you know it's, uh, Australia Day activities and Australian of the Year awards, which many do or don't agree with or <laughs> um, yep. have an opinion on. But but that was a nice role to play around pride, national pride and spirit and, and embracing what a new changing landscape it is. But I, but I think Ronald McDonald House is probably the one that's been consistently there and that's um, you know, helping families in their greatest time of uh, adversity and need, uh, you know, challenges around young children suffering serious or life-threatening illnesses coming from regional areas down to the big smoke and they're, they're ever-present all around the big cities. So... Like so many wonderful charities out there, they do a wonderful job. So mm. it's it's nice to, you know, and you get more out of it than what you put into it. That's what it feels like. So it's quite fulfilling. I, I think you'd been in the camp as well. Shane would tell me that uh, people in in uh, India would just, when they were, you guys would be walked from the hotel to the bus and the crowds, but they just try and touch you. They believe that yeah. you have that good aura. You've been touched by God yourselves. You are that good at what you do. They want to touch you to get some yeah. of those miracle germs off you. That's godlike, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's beautifully described by Warney. And that was all of us trying to touch Warney to get a little bit of his <laughs> uh, positivity rubbing off on us. But um, oh, what, a, what a champion. Um, yeah, it, it, India is a different different league when it comes to cricket but yeah. it, it is a, a godlike status there's no doubt about that and it's it's um yeah everyone's you know done their fair well many many of the guys have taken on particularly um uh, engaging uh roles over in india to try and uh, help as well i've done yeah. a, a fair bit of work with world vision there but that everyone i think just as a general statement across be it sporting or General society, I think the level of generosity that's out there around charitable causes and the awareness of it is uh, there doesn't ever seem to be any fatigue kick in, even through through COVID and, and through setbacks. I think that that fatigue uh, gets pushed aside when it comes to a time of need for the, as you say, the betterment of humanity. I was going to say, Gilly, thank you for speaking to us tonight, but does you, is it only your mum who calls you Adam? Or, yeah. Or, do you... <laughs> Everyone's Mum or wife when I'm in trouble. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Gilly, thank you very much then for talking to us this evening. Um, yeah, you've been a star in all of our eyes over the years and continue to do so. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to chat, mate, and, and fantastic to see you keeping this conversation going. And around mental health, it's uh, long, mate, continue. Thanks, mate. Good on you, mate. If you'd like to catch up on an episode you've missed or share it with a friend, subscribe to the podcast of The Conversations That Could, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Dermot Breton, and we'll be back next week, and we'll kickstart a conversation with Dare and Are You OK? Thanks for listening. The Conversations That Could with Dermot Breton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask Are You OK? Are You OK?